it's 10 o'clock at night and it's just cooling down and Maggie's whining to me I'm in the studio space tonight I might paint for a couple of hours uh, into the wee hours of the morning because I came in and I thought I like these, what's going on in them now I don't know which one I'll work on tonight but I was listening to Paul reading Rilke about Rilke and Rodin and I was trying to test this out to see if I could no it doesn't let me I don't know I guess I'm going to have to I think one of my apps used to let me record while I was listening to something else wasn't it <laughs> anyway I went to try to put it back on so I could listen to it while I painted and record my the sounds of me painting at night but I don't want to listen to that and I can't listen to it from my computer I'm trying to scratch my head here and see how I can react respond to this maybe I can record it into anchor on my computer while I'm listening to it let's try okay I'm trying this from my laptop and see what this sounds like. It's definitely, it's definitely time to go to sleep. And thank goodness I have beside me something that might send you to sleep. It'll certainly send me to sleep. Now, the complication is that I've even forgotten what page I'm on. Yeah, you must change your life, Paul. You really must change your life. Because this guy, Rilke, and this guy, Rodin, they're, they're so interesting. Have I got to the end of chapter five? I don't know, in August 1902, the poet folded his clothes and arranged them into an immaculate constellation in his suitcase. He was preparing to leave behind his wife and baby to embark on a quest, not merely to write, but to understand how an artist should be. Rodin could not have imagined the magnitude of the poet's devotion to the cause, which was of all almost biblical proportions. Rilke would worship the sculptor's art as if it were a religion, and Rodin himself like a savior. Like Joshua following Moses to the promised land, Rilke saw this journey. As the beginning of a new frontier, everything in his life felt uncertain, except for this. Now, the part two of the book is called Master and Disciple, but I'm not sure, really. Did we find out? I don't think we did. Tonight, I don't know where to put my I'm going to tell you another story. Rilke's father offered to help 
Powers only replied that the suggestion made him physically sick. It would mean giving up all he had struggled for and going back to the very thing he had fled. It would be, quote, a frost in which everything would have to die. He knew his father meant well, but why couldn't he understand that this profession would destroy his art? Why did art have to be seen as arrogance? To Rilke, art was his duty. No less compulsory than some treated military service. Rilke decided he'd rather starve as his family starved and work as a bank clerk. That phase would be like death without the grandeur of death. Finally, in the spring of 1902, the German publisher, Ricker Richard Mutter, told Rilke about his series of artist monographs, which would include volumes on Manet by Julius Mayer, Greifer, and on Leonardo da Vinci by Mutter himself. He knew Rilke had just finished the Borbsfeder monograph and suggested the poet write one on Rodin. Pay was a paltry 150 marks, but Rilke desperately needed the money and accepted the offer on the spot. <laughs> Privately, he also saw it as a way out of the house and out from under the oppressive routines of domesticity. He longed to feel, to be real among real things, like he had been before his marriage. If he went to Paris, he would be able to, quote, work in the libraries to collect myself and to write about Roland, who I have loved and revered for a long time. Rilke's decision to leave town just a few months after having a baby struck some as unforgivably selfish. How appalling. First marry and have a child and then think about how to earn a living, wrote Mother Stern, Stern in his journal. But Westhoff could not have objected too strongly because she used her connection as a former student of Rhoda to facilitate an introduction. She sent the sculptor a letter including some images of her work as a reminder. At first, no response came. As it happened, Rodin was in Prague at the same time, attending one of the largest surveys of his work ever staged. After that, Rodin traveled to Vienna to see this secession exhibition and visit with Gustav Klimt who had just debuted his monumental Beethoven frieze there. When Rodin saw the painting in person, he took Klimt's hand in his and said, what an artist you are. You understand your métier. After Rodin's return to Paris in June, Rilke followed up with another letter to say he would like to come to the city that fall to research a monograph on him. 
also implored the artist to respond with even a single word for Westhoff, who waited anxiously for the master's acknowledgement. Fortunately for Wilke, Rodin was a devoted bibliophile. He had sculpted dozens of works inspired by literature, and in turn, authors had been among his biggest supporters. Rodin was thought to be so influenced by writers and critics that he routinely made adjustments to his work in order to conform to their reviews. At the very least, Rodin had nothing to lose by granting access to this enthusiastic young writer. He responded warmly, but briefly, to say that he remembered Westhoff as a capable and imaginative sculptor, that he would be happy to receive Wilka for his research. Rodin would be available in Paris in September or November, should he like to visit then. Rilke wrote back in August that he would arrive the following month. He again made a push for his wife, asking if the master might also be willing to critique some of her sketches in person if she came along. Then he spent the rest of the summer studying and becoming utterly absorbed in Rodin's work. He is growing and growing for me the more I hear and see of his words. Does anyone exist? I wonder who is as great as he and yet is still living. Rilke wondered the expressive intensity of Rodin's work. Held a natural appeal for the young romantic, the physical strain of the Thinker's ruminations seemed to materialize a state of mind while the embracing marble lovers of the kiss embodied concentrated emotion. <laughs> In life nearly finished, Rilke admired Rodin's compulsive devotion to his craft. He sacrificed luxury and material for the preeminence of his art, which he valued more highly than gold or bread. He was known for living humbly and spending all his time at work in the company of his creations rather than friends or family. Rodin was one for whom the whole sky was but a stone, as Rilke once wrote. His desk covenant resonated with the poet who believed that deprivation leavened the soul. It occurred to him that perhaps Rhoda would be the master for whom he had searched and failed to find in Russia. Rilke hinted at this hope in another letter to Rhoda. Oh. Quote, it is the most tragic fate of young people who sense that it will be impossible for them to live without being poets or painters or sculpture, sculptors, that they should not find true counsel, all plunged in an abyss of forsakenness as they are. 
for in see King a powerful master. They seek neither words nor information. They ask for an example, a fervent heart, hands that make greatness. It is for you that they ask. Okay, this is the end of what we call page 17. Eight, I think, or six. Yeah. So we'll carry on from there next time. Okay, good night, Rachel Corbett. You're a very fine writer. Okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to say good night to you all. Good night. Good night, Paul. Well, Maggie and I are still up, aren't we? Are we still up painting? And I have added white, white areas to this Savannah painting, abstract painting. And some blue, some darker, more cobalt, aquamarine. No, yeah, aqua, French aqua, marine, with a little bit of white in it. Going over some layers here, trying to make sense of this drawing a little bit, or this piece. And him talking about Rilke and Rodin. Reminds me of when I was at the Rodin Museum and I saw the kiss. That was a wonderful day in my life. I saw so many Rodins and Camille Gladels, but mostly Rodin. And it was a rainy day. I didn't care. I was out in the garden, out in the garden with my umbrella and my friend. And we were looking at all the Rodin's. And there was a pond there. And it's time to turn the piece. Oh, I think that was in 2010. That was in October, November 2010. Oh, it's nice to have travel memories. Here I am listening to somebody from Ireland reading a book about Rilke and Rodin, which actually I had discovered through Paul's reading of The Young Poet, Letters to a Young Poet. I went looking up more things by Rilke because that I'd already always heard about that one, but I wanted to see what else he had written. And lo and behold, that's when I found his book about the young painter and this Rachel Corbett book. So he bought the book and I got the book out of my library. 
It's been a while, but we've been he's been reading it to the audio group. And he's chosen to do it like a bedtime story, which is kind of nice. Um, and tonight, it was just too dang hot. Too dang hot. To, uh, to be listening to it and laying still. So I decided to get up and... I saw my painting and I opened the doors to get cooled down. It's like I could paint for a couple of hours. That would feel good. So that's why we're up, huh, Maggie? That's why we're up. Yeah. I'm not sure where this piece is going. I'm just adding the little just here and there. I almost thought the piece was done when I looked at it earlier tonight. My, my, no, it's not done. <laughs> I'm never done. So, I don't know. I'm looking for... I'm just painting for fun here. Yep, that's the best way to do it anyway. Just keep at it until you can't say anything more. That's what you do. And I'm trying to change it from a bunch of yellows and more neutrals than yellow. I like the shapes that are in this piece. They're very organic. And yet I'm trying to make some have edges and more geometry in it. Not sure why. It's because when you hear the street outside, this studio here. I think I need to paint this piece out. Speaking me, every time I look at the piece, I see this thing in the middle here, and I'm like, you know what, dude? You don't need to be there. So I'll keep going. See what happens when I paint it out. See if it makes it better or worse. Or neither there or there. Sometimes, if your eye goes to the same spot when you look at your work, you're going, okay, yeah, there's something. I don't want my eye to always go there. I don't think it should go right there. Let's see now. It's hmm. not quite out enough. So, put some more opaqueness in there. Mm. 
That's interesting. I'm making, I'm using a small brush tonight. I'm not sure. I guess I'm like wanting to be cautious. Don't want to make huge changes yet. I think it's time to stop the recording. That's painting at 10 something in the evening here. To, to Paul Omani out of Cork, Ireland, reading Rachel Corbett's song, You Must Change Your Life. Some life story of Luca and Rhoda, or Rhoda, however you want to say it. Wherever you're from, you can say it the way you want, right? Is it true that we can mispronounce a name? It would be okay anyway, right? I like, I like names. I like to try to get them right. 